I'm turning this evening to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 once again. And we'll be looking tonight at verses 7 through 15. Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15. Now, last week we examined the works of Christ. And the question that John sent from prison, and he sent two of his disciples to ask a most interesting question. And that question concerned, and is there in verse number three, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? It was quite an interesting question for John to be asking since John was in fact the one who had already announced Jesus' coming, had proclaimed him by saying, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Uh, but we looked in depth that uh, was John questioning fully because he didn't believe that was the Messiah, or was it a, uh, a question to help strengthen his disciples, or maybe it was even to strengthen his own assurance in what he was proclaiming. So we learned in those first three verses about the expectations of the messianic prophecies, that these prophecies had proclaimed that it would in fact be Jesus who would be the fulfiller of these prophecies, and he would be the one who would clearly uh, be the uh, prophet or be the, the Messiah that the prophets had spoken so clearly about. Uh, tonight we want to continue uh, that line of thought uh, thinking about the faithfulness of this messianic prophet or the faithfulness of John the Baptist. And if you would, just go with me to uh, verse number 11. It says, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Uh, this, again, is another interesting perspective. Uh, what exactly is the Lord teaching here about not only the gospel, uh, but what is he teaching about this least in the gospel? Uh, what, is, uh, what is this... Uh, the kingdom of heaven being greater, the kingdom of heaven uh, being greater than he. Uh, we see that this prophet, John, the, the prophet himself, uh, again in verse number seven, we begin to see how Jesus now begins to, to clearly identify that this is in fact uh, the Messiah, that John the Baptist is the one, Jesus is the one who is saying about John the Baptist, he begins to give testimony to this man. And you'll see there in verse 7, and as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. So this is the Lord beginning to bear testimony about who John was, and that John has faithfully given testimony of himself. Uh, John had honored Jesus with his testimony, and now we see that Jesus is honoring John. Jesus asked this very interesting question. In verse 7, he says, what, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
Or what went ye out into the wilderness to see? Our Lord is even asking this question. You went out to see John. You went out to the wilderness to have a look at him. What was it that you were looking for? What, what did you see? And what Jesus' point here is, is he said, I want you to explain to me what this prophet sounded like, what this prophet looked like, but specifically, what was this prophet saying? Now, again, we looked last week at how there, it has been taken by some that Jesus was rebuking John's question that he sent from prison when he said, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? And yet now we see Jesus clearly elevating John and saying, listen, John is the one that the prophets were bearing testimony about. You went to see John, he says. You went out of the wilderness to look at him. And what did you see? And he uses an interesting phrase. Did you see a reed shaken with the wind? So Jesus answers the question with another question. Now, this reed shaken with the wind is an interesting, it's an interesting illustration. And uh, the, the idea here is, is that uh, the reed it was something that could be easily shaken. It was something that could be easily disturbed. And Jesus' question is, is when John the Baptist went out, did, did you see a man who could be easily swayed? Did you see a man who could be easily blown over? Did you see a man who was this eloquent speaker? What actually did you see? Because we realize that Jesus was talking about John's, how he preached, how he spoke. But John was not a flatterer. John was not from the school of proper homiletics of how to preach a sermon and make sure you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. He was a prophet. He was a man who, when we read the account of him, he sounded like a wild man. He sounded like a man that uh, nobody is going to invite over to dinner, that's for sure. But yet, Jesus wants to know and is asking the question. Jesus talks about John the Baptist. John had not sent those disciples to Jesus because he was weak but because John the Baptist was with, wanted absolute certainty that he could endure what was happening to him being in prison without any problems at all. So what we see here is that this reed shaken with the wind is somebody who could not be easily blown over or somebody who could not be pushed over doctrinally. Now he goes on and he describes him again and he says in verse 8, But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. <laughs> Jesus is saying, did, did you see a man who was all about his appearance? Did you see a man who was all about his manners? Did you see a man who was all uh, pompous and arrogant in how he spoke? Did he use soft expressions? John was not in it to be a flatterer. John was not in it to try to impress. This idea behind the soft clothing, Jesus elaborates on that and he says, No, behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. The, this this watered-down, soft message. And Jesus is driving home this point that this man, John, was, uh, was not a man who was in it to flatter. He was there to preach and proclaim that which is true. John 
had found himself now in a prison house. John's not in the palace. John is not in a place now where uh, he's enjoying uh, those, uh, the simplicity of life. In some ways, John the Baptist had been promoted to prison. John is in a place that many of us will never experience. He was there for, he was there for preaching. He was there for proclaiming. His message was very clear from the get-go. His message was repent. His message did not go over well. People, did, people don't want to be confronted with that. They don't want to be confronted with their sin. They want to be confronted with this is what the message is. So Jesus is bearing witness that John was not tickling the ears, if you will. But he continues to ask this question. Notice how many times Jesus says, but what went ye out to see? Or what did you see? He says again in verse 9, but what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. You see more than a prophet here. For this is he, now notice what Jesus is saying, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. John, in, in comparatively speaking, with all the prophets, was the greatest of the prophets that had come. And he had come nearer to Jesus than any one of those prophets ever did. He was the one that many mis they, they mistake believing that this is the Messiah. And yet, here Jesus is saying, he's more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. We understand that in the book of Malachi, the Lord God had promised to send a messenger before Messiah. And now the Messiah himself is quoting the very prophecy about him. You see the fulfillment here. Jesus is speaking about the one who would be the forerunner, who would, who would speak of him. And Malachi even acknowledged and preached that that messenger is coming before the Messiah actually comes. John is, in fact, the one who Jesus is speaking about. John was the messenger of God to prepare the way of the Lord, and the Lord recognizes him in that capacity. He says, this is he. But notice again, he's asking the hearers and he's speaking to the multitudes. But what I really want to know is what did you see? What did, did you see him as the fulfillment? Did you see him as the Messiah? Did you see John as the messenger who is speaking for me, the forerunner before me? Notice that Jesus is not showing any sort of shame that John is in prison. But rather, Jesus is speaking very openly that this is the prophet. This is that messenger that the Old Testament scripture said and the Old Testament prophet said would come. This is him. For this is he, verse 10, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. John had openly confessed Christ. And now Christ is openly confessing him. There's not a shame here. You know, we looked last week at those who had taken the position that Jesus was somehow ashamed of John, that John had asked that question about, are you the one? Here we see clearly Jesus is openly honoring John as being that prophet. 
And then verse 11, he says, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Jesus now identifies the position of this messianic prophet in the kingdom of God. How does John the Baptist compare, or where is he placed in the kingdom of God? Verses 7 through 10, he talks about his preaching. Here's how the messianic prophet John preached. And now he says, what is the position of John in the kingdom of heaven? And this is where we get this very peculiar statement. He says, I say unto you, among them that are born of women. And he's, he is saying all that have been born of a woman in all of humanity, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is setting John in a very high position here. He's saying this, there, there has not been a greater than he. John is the greatest who has been born of a woman. But then you'll notice that Jesus then says, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He announces that John is the greatest that's ever been born among women, but in the kingdom of heaven, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than John. What does he mean by that? This higher plane now that Jesus is speaking about here. John had been, yes, the greatest of those before the, the, before the full completion of the gospel that's coming here, this new gospel order, and Jesus is very clearly saying is that the very least person in the gospel stands on higher ground. How privileged are we who by this understanding of entering into the kingdom of heaven by faith are made to see and to hear and to enjoy what the prophet of the prophets couldn't even clearly fully see. Some have said that John, has, John is just right up to being a full gospel preacher. He's, he's, he's right up to that because he's the one announcing Jesus who was coming and he's, he's right there. But yet Jesus now says that notwithstanding, even though the greatest of John the Baptist, his position is there, you who are least in the kingdom... You who are the very least in the kingdom is greater than he is when it comes to the heavenly kingdom, when it comes to the effects and the power of what the gospel has done. Now, if I think if we understood and we continue to see what Jesus is saying, because in verse 10, 12, he then says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. I think it's safe to say wherever John went, there was some displeasure and some anger. John was not welcomed into towns as preaching and bringing a message everybody wanted to hear. John's preaching alone had enraged people. Now, remember this, that even the Jews themselves were very, very eager for the kingdom of heaven. They were, they were eager for its arrival. They were eager for these things to happen. But remember, their expectations were, they were wrong. They thought that was going to happen right away. 
they misinterpreted what the kingdom of heaven really was. They misinterpreted that this was not that time. This was not. And instead of John coming and saying, now the kingdom of heaven is now, John came instead saying, repent. Repent. John, in his own eagerness to proclaim Christ, sent those two disciples to the Lord with that, that question. It's interesting that the word violence is used there, suffered violence. John's preaching, John's introduction of pointing to the Messiah had entered into a very passionate eagerness on the basis of the people, yet they were expecting the kingdom of heaven to be now, and yet it was repent. There's this demand that's being set forth. John goes on, Jesus goes on rather in verse 13, says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. We see here now the proclamation to hear the Messianic prophet. Jesus is now getting into the place where he is going to start really driving home the reality that you've seen all this, you knew this was coming, you've heard about the prophets, you've, you've seen the prophets prophesying about John. You realize God has never left himself without a witness throughout all of history. There's always been a witness to who he is. John was the ending of the foretellers. Those who were saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. He was the last prophet to actually foretell what was happening. Now, the Lord himself appears on the scene. John is in prison. Jesus himself the fulfillment of those prophecies, the fulfillment of those prophets. He's now on the scene and he begins to now draw a line. And you'll see where he says it here. He says that uh, for, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Until John, they had all, this is what they had all done. And until John and now by John's being the last one there, Jesus now begins to say, verse 14, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. This is that spirit of Elijah. This is that announcement that John was the Elijah in whom they were to be looking for. Would the people believe it? Would they actually believe that this was he who was prophesied about? I mentioned Malachi just a moment ago. Go back to Malachi chapter 3 and look at verse number 1. Malachi 3 verse 1. The prophecy very, very clear here. Malachi is announcing here the coming of Messiah. He's announcing his forerunner. And even at that time, he's charging the nation with various offenses against God. In Malachi 3 verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And then if you go over to Malachi 4, verse 5, notice what he says. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day 
of the Lord. This prophet, this Elijah the prophet, that was fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. So this was, what the reference is, is this is the Elijah that Malachi talked about. John the Baptist is the one that that Malachi prophesied about. And if you will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. What was the preaching of John? Repent. Would the people obey that? Would the people obey the command to repent? If they repented, then he certainly would be to them a true Elijah. Would they receive it? Even if a person is announced to be sent of God, now this is, this is true of anything. If a person is announced to have been sent of God, the hearer chooses what to make of that, of that prophet. So what Jesus is actually saying is, this is what you make of it. If you'll receive this, if you will, as the hearer, if you will choose this and hear him, if you'll receive what's being said. How many times have we had a spiritual conversation with someone and the command is given to repent and believe the gospel and the, the unbeliever walks away still as an unbeliever? They don't, they don't receive it. They don't take it. Jesus is announcing publicly this is this was the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. John the Baptist was the one preparing the way for me. Will you receive what John had been saying? But if he's not received, John would become and would have become nothing more than something that was meaningless and a person who was just simply what, what Paul would talk about in the New Testament also of being a tinkling symbol. And then Jesus gives this most telling of statements. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, Jesus said this is a matter that is worthy of your attention. It's worthy that if you can hear anything, hear this truth. Now Jesus obviously isn't talking about if you have physical ears on your head. He's not talking about whether you actually are able to hear with those physically. He's talking in the spiritual realm. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Through the hearing spiritually, that blessing of what's being said comes into the soul. Hear it and live. Hear and receive the word and live. Isn't it interesting that the very God who made the ear, the human ear, also has a right to demand that the ear hears. He who created it has the right to draw attention to it and say, he who has ears, let him hear. You realize, folks, we do live in a day and age when there are people who have no ears to hear the truth at all. 
They don't want to hear the truth. Truth is spoken. They won't receive it. Clear truth is presented. They won't receive it. Jesus is saying the truth is right in front of you. The fulfillment of all those prophecies. John the Baptist is so clearly the one who would prophesy of me. And now here I am standing before you. And if you have ears to hear it, hear it. Folks, I don't know if we could ever give God enough thanks for giving us the ability to hear and receive the truth. Because we all realize tonight that you did not hear this truth just because you made a decision to hear the truth. God gave you the ability to hear and to respond and to receive, to acknowledge what you're hearing is truth. The hearing ear and the eye that sees match up with what the Bible tells us that salvation is from the Lord. By giving them this direct command, by giving directly to them, he who hears will be blessed. He who doesn't hear will certainly not be blessed. But then Jesus gives really this until the end of the chapter. He says in verse 16, but whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows, saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publican and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children." Jesus actually now puts a very clear condemnation on the age and the generation in which he was currently living. The people would not listen to the messenger of God, whoever it was. That's what this series of statements he's making. Jesus is saying every time the proof is right in front of them, every time the truth is clear as day, they become like little children. They raise childish objections to the truth. The Lord compares them to children, notice what it says, sitting in the markets. Children sitting in the markets who were asked to play by their fellow friends, but they could never agree on what the game was, for example. The children would, again, it's interesting because it says that they're sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. We've mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. They're giving all of these different imitations of things that we did this and you wouldn't dance, you wouldn't mourn. You wouldn't lament. Jesus is putting it out there. He's saying every truth that was in front of you, you just disagreed with it. You wouldn't receive it. And he says, this is what I compare this generation to. Who, when they see the truth, hear the truth, they, rise, they raise childish objections to the truth. Such was the manner of men even in our Lord's time. 
what did they say about John? Instead of receiving him as the fulfillment of that prophet, they said, John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he had the devil. You know what they thought about John? They thought John was possessed. He's possessed of a demon. He's possessed of a devil. Jesus, look at the accused, look what they accused Jesus of. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. So to those that were hearing these truths, John was a man who was possessed with the devil, and Jesus himself was a man who was accused of eating and drinking to excess and then associating with the most wicked of society. No matter what was put in front of them, they were disagreeable to it. There was absolutely positively no pleasing them. No matter how clear the messenger was, no matter how clear the Messiah was, they were not going to receive it. Folks, we, we buy this kind of by way of application, and we buy this application often that we think, well, we just need, we just need the speaker to, be, to speak it more clearly. We need the speaker to just be more polished. We need the speaker to uh, just take a little bit softer of approach. You realize that there are those who will not receive the truth, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It wouldn't have mattered who I sent before me, and it wouldn't matter anything, you would still be disagreeable to me being the Messiah. No matter what happened. It's the idea that there is no suiting some people. No matter what you put in front of them, they're not going to be accepting of it. Yet notice what he says. But wisdom is justified of her children. Wisdom, after all, is what sent forth these disciples, these ambassadors. The messengers of Jesus, the messengers of God Himself, were His. They were sent out. They were the ones that, that, that were, were preaching and, and speaking the truth. But imagine what's happening here. And imagine how this lines up with our society today. We have tried and tried and tried every gimmick. We've tried every program. We've tried all sorts of ways to trick people into accepting and receiving the truth instead of just continually putting the truth right in front of them. It's not anything new. If you go into the, you will see the same, you'll see the same objections, the same childish objections being raised to the truth. You, you can have a conversation with somebody right in front of them, show them the truth, and they will raise every objection under the sun to deny it. They are like the children sitting in the markets. No matter what you try to show them, no matter how you try to explain it, they won't dance. They won't mourn. Again, notice Jesus is using illustration here. They are, not, they are not agreeable. Think about the realities of what Jesus is getting ready to do. He begins to announce because of this rejection, and we'll deal with this next week, because of this rejection, 
Look at, the, look at the phrase in verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. He begins to pronounce woes on entire people that will not receive. He begins to talk about it would be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for those who reject this. For all that want to say that Jesus was just a preacher of love and tenderness and softness. What are you going to do with the last part of this chapter? Because Jesus is all but saying, it's right in front of you. And yet, you continue to reject. You continue to not receive. You continue to raise childish objections to everything that's before you. And yet, it's clearly right in front of you. This portion of Scripture that we'll look at next week that makes up the rest of this chapter really deals with three really important truths. It deals with the responsibility of man. It deals with the sovereign election of God. And it deals with the free invitation of the gospel. All three of those things from verse number 20 to the end of the chapter deal with those three main topics. And it's important we understand the responsibility of man. Man is responsible for what he does with what he hears. But that's not to the exclusion of the sovereign election of God. We believe in the election of God. We believe in the sovereign act of God. But at the same time, there is the free invitation of the gospel that goes out to each and every, each and every person that we see. You and I don't differentiate between who gets the invitation of the gospel, who gets the command to repent and believe. It is to go to every single person. God is sovereign, man is responsible. That's really what the rest of this chapter is all about. And somehow in that mystery of God, we see that God in His, the way that only He can do, puts it in a way where man is left saying, I am without excuse if I ignore this. If I refuse to receive it. They're not easy truths to think about. There's mystery in them. But we trust them because they are the things in which God has left us in His Word. So next week, if you want to read ahead, we'll pick up in verse 20. And we'll see how far we get. Um, I don't know if we'll get through the entire end of the chapter, but we will at least get to the woes that He announces on these uh, particular cities. And it's interesting because He does look at some of these cities it looks more favorable upon them. It's a pretty interesting uh, part of that. So let's, let's finish tonight with singing the hymn on 368. 368, Speak, O Lord. Uh, we'll stand and sing, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. We'll end with the hymn 368.